This morning we are going to be in uh, Psalm 36. And so if you have a Bible, if you want to turn there, or you can follow along on the, the screen, verses will be put up there for us. Um, so this is a Psalm of David. It's a, uh, it's a timeless Psalm that speaks both to the nature and character of mankind, uh, as well as to the nature and character of God. And we're going to see how uh, these two natures are pretty contrary to each other. Um, and as we study this psalm, we're going to see how David seeks to explain why uh, wicked people are the way they are, how they become uh, more and more wicked. And then in contrast to that, uh, David seeks to magnify the love and the righteousness of God in light of and in contrast to the sinfulness of humanity. So you, could, you might think of it as um, kind of like the stars against the backdrop of the night sky. If you're, you know, if you're out in the daytime, as long as the sun is up, the, the stars are difficult, if not impossible, to see. They're still there, but it's very hard to see them. Or, or even, if you, um, even if it's night out, but you live in a city, an urban area like we do, and there's a lot of artificial light, the, the stars can be difficult to see. But, but as the sky grows dark, the stars really come out, and they really come out uh, more brightly. And so the darker your surroundings, the brighter and clearer they get. And that's what we're going to see. That's the picture that David paints here. The love and the patience and the providence of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God, um, in spite of the wickedness of humanity. And so I'm going to read this and, uh, and pray, and then we'll look at these. It's only 12 verses long, and we'll uh, look at these verses together and study them together. It says, Transgression speaks... To the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this day that you have made. 
We thank you for your word that you have revealed yourself to us. And it's a word for us, Lord, each one of us here who are at different places, wrestling with different things, struggling with different sins. Um, and I just pray that you would speak to each one of us here this morning and meet us where we are. And I pray, Lord God, that we would behold, we would be able to behold the, your goodness and your grace, the goodness and grace of God in the midst of sinful people. And that we would see it more clearly, more boldly, more beautifully than we ever have before. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, so verse 1, transgression speaks to the wicked uh, deep within his heart. Actually, in the verses 1 through 4, um, a summary of that might be the, uh, in the first four verses, David talks about the effects of sin on the heart and on, and on the mind. Uh, so David's describing what theologians have called the noetic effects of sin. Noetic just means of the mind. So sin affects a person's ability to think. Sin affects a person's ability to reason and to, to make judgments about things. Um, and, it, and it actually impairs a person's ability to think clearly. Sin fosters doubt, foolishness, skepticism, cynicism, pride, uh, deceit, and darkness in a person's mind rather than faith, truth, humility, love, and wisdom. So verse 1 says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. David is saying that transgression, sin actually speaks or whispers to people. In other words, it, it influences people. And this becomes obvious if we just take a few uh, common expressions. You guys have probably heard these uh, of worldly wisdom. You take a few common expressions of worldly wisdom and examine them in the light of Scripture. Um, one popular one is follow your heart. Anybody heard that before, right? We've all, we've all probably heard that, follow your heart. But if you examine that in light of verses like Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who could understand it? We see how, how, how uh, horrible of advice that actually is. Or Proverbs twenty eight twenty six: He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. So that's one common phrase, follow your heart. Another one is uh, live and learn. We've probably heard that. We've probably even said that uh, to, to ourselves or each other. So uh, live and learn, a common phrase of worldly wisdom. In other words, everyone needs to experience things for themselves in order to mature and become wise. And in our postmodern time, um, many people have even taken this as far as to say you, you can't understand certain concepts about justice and fairness unless you're part of a certain minority or a certain class of people. But if you examine that in the light of Proverbs 4, I'm just paraphrasing it here. Here's a, a paraphrase of Proverbs chapter 4. Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. For I give you sound teaching. Acquire wisdom. Do not forsake her, and she will guard you. Love her, and she will watch over you. Accept my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. So the Bible actually says the exact opposite of live and learn. It says learn, 
and live. And then one last common expression, um, you might have heard somebody say, uh, I, I had to get it out of my system, or, uh, or I, had to, I had to vent, or I had to sow my wild oats. And the Bible actually says, no, you didn't, <laughs> and it was foolish that you did. Uh, Galatians 6, 7 through 8, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. So the Bible says that acting on our evil desires or our fleshly desires doesn't actually get any evil out of your system. Acting on your evil desires actually corrupts you even more, puts more evil into your system, you could say. So so sin affects us. It, It hardens our heart. It sears our conscience, especially when we don't take it as seriously as God does. And so, and so David says of the wicked, there is no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, they don't care what God thinks about them or what God thinks about their sin. David establishes this relationship between transgression, between sin, and the fear of God. Proverbs 16.6 says, by, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. So the Bible says the fear of God turns people away from evil. And the the reverse is also true. Sin sin turns people away from God. And even, according to Romans chapter 1, even uh, God away from them. In Romans 1 verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and righteousness of an unrighteousness of men. And so what does that wrath look like? Well, in verse 24 of Romans 1, it says God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts. So one of the judgments of God for sin is giving you over to even worse sin. So so it's bad to do something wrong and get caught. It's potentially even worse to do something wrong and seem to get away with it. So David establishes this relationship. More fear, more fear of God means less sin. Less fear of God results in more sin. And so when there is no fear of God before your eyes, there's no limit to the evil that you'll think about, the things that you'll say, and the things that you'll take part in. And so a good question here might be, well, then how do we cultivate the fear of God in our lives? And I thought it was interesting as I was reading and studying that in Psalm 19, David actually calls God's word the fear of the Lord. Uh, in, Psalm, in Psalm 19, let me read some of it to you. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. So we have all of these phrases that describe the word of God, uh, the law of the Lord, the the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, and even the fear of the Lord. And so that's how we cultivate the fear of God in ourselves, in each other, and in our communities by, by learning and studying and proclaiming God's word to ourselves, to our children, and to each other. And so we come to church to, to hear it read, to hear it explained. We sing it. We teach it to our kids. But most importantly, we examine ourselves in its light. 
It's only by, the, by an honest self-examination in the mirror of Scripture, only that will bring about the discovery of and hatred of sin in your life. Uh, but of course, that's difficult to do. It's way easier and more convenient to just live in denial of our sin. And according to what Jesus says in John chapter 3, that's exactly humanity's problem. He says, Jesus says in John 3, uh, that light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light, and they won't, they won't come to the light. When, uh, when I first became a Christian a little over 15 years ago, um, one of the websites that I found that really helped me, I just thought it was one of the best, one of the most apt names for a Christian website that you could have, and it was called I'llBeHonest.com. And... Um, and it was just it had, and it just had a bunch of gospel videos, uh, you know, sermons and different things, just things explaining the gospel. Um, but I just thought it was such a great name for a Christian website because that really is what it, what it's all about: is can we be honest with ourselves about about our sin? So in uh, verse two, uh, we see how how sin deceives us. David talks about how sin deceives us, or he flatters himself in his own eyes, that his iniquity cannot be found out and, and hated. So a lot of sin's deception happens through self, self-flattery, denial of the sinfulness of sin, and, and denial of God's judgment, that God, God won't find out your sin, that God doesn't hate your sin, right? And so in self-flattery, we say things like, I'm not that bad, there are lots of people worse than me, or we might say, God just wants me to be happy, uh, we might say, everyone makes, makes mistakes, everyone sins. We might say, I'm only human. These are all ways that we flatter ourselves to make, make us feel more important than we really are or at less deserving of punishment than we really are. A lot of times, even going to church, people will look to get a, a pep talk or advice on how to have a more fulfilled life instead of expecting to learn about who God is and what he expects of us instead of learning about how to kill sin in our lives, about who Christ is and why he means absolutely everything to us. And so, so the wicked flatters himself. He holds to the false belief that his iniquity can't be found out and hated by God. In other words, the other thing they do is they deny God's anger and judgment and wrath against sin. And we, we see this and we hear this all the time in our culture today. People say things like, God loves me and wants me to be happy. I think God just wants me to be happy. We hear things like, God loves everyone. God, God will forgive me. A loving God would never send anyone to hell. A loving God would never punish people for their sin. And so we, we lie to ourselves and think that God doesn't really notice my sin. Or even if he does, he, he doesn't really hate it. Uh, he loves me too much to be angry with me or punish me, punish me for the few little things that I've done wrong. So David says the, the wicked live in self-flattery, denial of God's anger towards sinners, and, and the third thing, in denial of the sinfulness of sin. We think our sin is no big deal. We might say things like, I'm not hurting anybody. Uh, it's my life. It's not that big of a deal. My situation is different. You don't know what I've been through. Um, the, the sin I'm, this, this thing I'm doing, it's not forbidden in the Bible. Okay, maybe it is, but only in the Old Testament. It's not in the New Testament. I live, you know, I'm, I'm in the New Testament. God wouldn't give me this desire and then punish, punish me for acting on it. 
right? And so one of the biggest causes of our denial of the sinfulness of sin is our lack of the fear of God. We don't realize what sin actually is, that it's a betrayal of the king of the universe, which is a big deal no matter how it happens, uh, whether it's through just a lie, whether it's through pride or greed or discontentment or lust. You know, so sin is a big deal, but betraying God is a big deal no matter how that betrayal actually happens. And then in verses 3 and 4, David goes on to explain how the wicked person flatters and deceives himself. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. So we see words of trouble and deceit. We see um, ceasing to act wisely, the absence of wise decisions and good works. We see uh, wicked plans and schemes and habits. And then finally, we see this passivity or indifference uh, toward evil. He does not reject evil. So the wicked person speaks words of trouble or wickedness. In the Hebrew, this word could also even be translated as, as vanity. Just, just words of vanity, words of foolishness. The things they talk about are foolish or vain or, or even harmful. Their, their conversation uh, stirs up strife. All they, all, all they talk about is uh, self-gratification or, or they complain about everything. They show ingratitude and impatience toward others and use their words to tear people down and make themselves look better than they really are. Their, their words are always words of trouble. And their words are deceitful. Trouble and deceit. Everything has a spin put on it. Right? They, they tell some truth, but hardly ever the whole truth. The, the wicked person cares more about how their conversation makes them look than about how their conversation itself looks in the sight of a holy God. And so they, they might slander other people. They, they care little to nothing about whether the things they say are actually accurate or actually true, but it's more about what fits their narrative. And so, and then David says they've, they've stopped acting wisely and doing good. So there's this element of idleness here. Um, you think of that old uh, phrase that's true, that, that nature abhors a vacuum. There, there really is no such thing as doing nothing. <laughs> um, you're, you're always going to be spending time. Uh, time will always be spent. You're either using time wisely or foolishly, but time will constantly be spent. The only question is, how will you spend it? And so the wicked person acts foolishly. If you think about it, even with regard to their own soul. So the absence of uh, spiritual disciplines, the absence of Bible study, prayer, regular church attendance, because they, they don't have a desire to, because they're too busy with vain entertainments, perhaps, um, so they, you know, they imagine that they can be saved without being sanctified. They might imagine that they can say, claim that they're submitted to the authority of Christ while at the same time refusing to submit to the authority of any local church. As Jude says, they, they turn the grace of God into licentiousness, into license to sin. They might have a form of religion, but as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, by their lives... They deny its power. 
And so their so-called faith doesn't produce good works of repentance and faithful service and discipline in their life. It doesn't sanctify them because it isn't real. So the, the wicked person has stopped doing good, right? Stopped doing good, which then in turn leads to them start planning and doing evil. Verse 4 says, he plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He he does not reject evil. One of the best examples I can think of of this in Scripture is uh, is David in 2 Samuel 11, where it starts with his sin with Bathsheba, starts with him not going out to battle with his army, not being where he should have been, should have been and not doing what he should have been doing which then leads him to seeing Bathsheba and literally plotting trouble on his bed um, and, and setting himself in a way that's not good so entering into the way of sin in your, your mind then leads to sinful actions and then we see here sets himself in a way that is not good he does not reject evil once you've entered into sinful actions yourself, sinful habits yourself, how are you going to oppose it? Right? And if you do, then you're a, a hypocrite if you do. And so now you, you can't hate and oppose and, and rebuke what others are doing without being hip, being a hypocrite. And so this is the, the trap of sin. The, the, the trap of sin. David writes about how the wicked man does not reject evil. He goes along with it. He allows it. He, he goes along to get along. Because at the end of the day, he's not all that concerned with the glory of God. He's, he's really more concerned about his own personal gain. And if I, I would say if there's ever an exhortation that Christians in our day need, it is this. It is to reject evil. It is to not go along with evil. It is to not live by lies. Proverbs 17.15 says, He who justifies the wicked... And he who condemns the righteous, both of them are an abomination to the Lord. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And we live in a day when, sadly, even many professing Christians have embraced false words, false beliefs, false definitions, false practices. Things like marriage and gender, which are ordained ordained by God. From the beginning, he made them male and female. And we see even professing Christians refusing to accept God's created order and live by that. And it only ends up hurting themselves and others. Christians should not be going along with it just so they can be nice and be thought, thought well of by the world. Because according to the Bible, being nice and truly loving someone are not always the same thing. In Proverbs it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. So when we go along with evil, when we don't reject evil, we don't really love the other person. I mean, you think about it even as a parent. If you refuse to ever discipline your kids because you only ever want to be nice to them, you don't actually love them. And in the same way, if you refuse to ever get into a loving, constructive conflict with someone living in a destructive perversion, you don't actually love them. You actually 
hate them. You're, you're content to leave them to the destruction of their soul in order to preserve pleasant conversation with them. So Christians must despise and oppose evil. In fact, we're talking, going back to the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. But the wicked do not despise evil because they've set themselves in that same path. They don't reject evil. They go along with it. And then, and then in verse 5, David, you can see just a, totally switches gears here. Uh, in verse 5, after setting the backdrop of the sinfulness of the wicked, of the sinfulness of mankind, um, David describes the love and the righteousness of God. And we get to behold the goodness and the grace of God in the midst of sinful people. The goodness of God in all the earth. In verse 5 we read, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. What is truly incredible in this world is that it continues to thrive in spite of all the evil that human beings have done. And, of course, that speaks not to our glory, but to God's glory. His steadfast love and faithfulness is what keeps the sun shining and the rain falling. It's what keeps the earth producing crops and animals reproducing after their kind. Uh, one of my favorite songwriters is a guy named Andrew Peterson. and He has a song called Isn't It Love? And I think it, it puts it really well. I'll just read a couple lines. Uh, Peterson writes, And when I think about that prodigal son, I've got a smile when I see the old man run. And I know you love us the same because the son came up today. Just as if we deserved it. Just as if any of us fools was worth it. The truth is, I'm anything but perfect. But you love me anyway. Now, isn't that love, this rain that falls on the sinners and the saints, isn't it love, this well that won't run dry? So the, the steadfast love and faithfulness of God is so great, so, so great, and yet it usually goes unrecognized by people. In verse 6, David continues to describe this. He says, Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Like mountains. When you think of a mountain, what do you think of? You think of uh, something that's unmoving, unyielding, unchanging. And like the mountains, God's righteousness is unchanging. It's unyielding. It's unmoving. His standard of righteousness has never changed, and it will never change because it's based on his character. His character never changes. It will never change. And, like traversing mountains, trying to achieve the righteousness of God is a steep climb. In fact, it's an impossible climb. The mountain is much too high, much too steep. As David says in another psalm, uh, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? One who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to deceit and has not sworn deceitfully, so that leaves me out. Clean hands, 
pure heart, no deceit whatsoever. So the righteousness of God, trying to achieve it on your own, is way too steep of a climb. And then he talks about God's judgments. Your judgments are like the great deep. Like great oceans, God's judgments are deep. God is the only being with perfect, all-encompassing knowledge. And so he is therefore the only one qualified to make perfect judgments because he knows not just the words and actions of people, but also the thoughts and the motives behind them. And so this is why James says, who are you to judge your neighbor? Uh, What James is not saying that human beings should make no judgments, but he's speaking to the reality that no one is able to judge as God is able to judge. So his judgment, God's judgment, and his justice are perfect because he knows absolutely everything about every single person that he created. His judgments are like the great deep. And at the end of verse 6 we read, Man and beast you save, O Lord. Talking about God's preservation of both people and animals. It, it would be hard for us to imagine all that the creator and sustainer of this world actually puts up with. When you consider that he sees, he knows about every evil thought that we have, every word that we say, uh, everything that people do, everything that happens on this planet, and yet he preserves our lives. And so meditating on this leads David to exclaim in verse 7, the very next verse, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. Indeed, it is precious, and it's pervasive, much more precious and much more pervasive than probably anyone realizes. In, uh, In James, it says that every good and perfect gift is from above. Every good thing that people have is a gift from God. I remember um, I heard this from a, an open-air preacher, and I was, I was a little shocked at first when I first heard it, I was, but I think it's true. that he was, he was preaching to a crowd of people, and he told them, he said, even the pleasure that you get from sin is a gift from God. It's like, whoa, wow. But I think it's, it's true. There, even the pleasure that people get from their sin is a gift from God. There's no pleasure at all in hell, ever. Uh, the reason wicked people continue to experience pleasure and happiness in this world is because of the steadfast love and faithfulness of a God who causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. Even the pleasure people get from sin is a gift from God, but it's a stolen gift. A stolen gift that they're going to have to answer for one day. I mean, you know, suppose my wife uh, bought me a new guitar for my birthday and put it in the closet, and then she were to tell me, I bought you a gift for your birthday, it's in the closet, don't go in there. And then suppose that I did go in there the, the very next day, and then I got the guitar out and started playing it. I would still get pleasure from playing the instrument, but I've also betrayed my wife and destroyed trust in our relationship and made her righteously angry with me right? And so in this way, you think about that sin is like a prison, but it looks like a palace. 
It's like a prison that looks like a palace. On the, on the one hand, it's a prison because you're a slave to your own lusts and your desires. You're a, a slave to your own selfishness and your own you know, greed and the, the, the things that have captured you. You're not living for the glory of God. You're living for yourself. So in that way, it's a prison, but it looks like a palace because there doesn't, as long as you're in that, that mindset, there's no reason to leave. It, you, God continues to be gracious to you and patient with you. And instead of, instead of seeing God's goodness, as Paul says in Romans 2, as, as cause for repentance, his kindness and his forbearance and his patience with us is supposed to lead us to repentance, God says. But because sin affects our mind, we think of it as just license to continue to live however we, we want to live. So, so sin is, in that way, it's like a prison that looks like a palace. It's deceitful. Um, and then in verse 8, David describes all of these things that we take for granted, that we believe we, we have a right to have. All these things are actually gracious gifts that often go unappreciated from the hand of the giver. We, uh, we feast on the abundance of his house, drink from the river of his delights. We live under God's protection. You, know, you could see this in all kinds of ways. Science is one of the ways we know that if the earth were just a little bit closer to the sun, we would all burn up. But if it was just a bit further away, everything would freeze. Uh, we live under God's protection and, and God's provision. We feast on the abundance of his house and drink from the river of his delights. And often we think we're entitled to it, as if somehow we created the world. So people enjoy the giver's gracious gifts, tragically, sadly, while wanting nothing to do with the giver. But the truth is that it's, it's only when we acknowledge all of these things as coming from a good and gracious God that we can actually think, reason, speak, and act rightly. Which is why I think this leads David to say in verse 9, with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Everything begins with God. And yet our sinful nature is, is so corrupt that we often willfully refuse to acknowledge it. Without our Creator, none of us can even make sense of the world. And yet, apart from God's grace, at the same time we're so ho- hopelessly lost and blind apart from Christ, that we would, we would rather live in a world that makes no sense than bow our knee to him. God is the fountain of life. God is the source of all light, the source of all truth. It's in his light that we see light. All truth is God's truth. And the righteous will live by faith or trust in that truth. But the wicked would rather live by lies. And then so realizing this leads us... Uh, leads David to write um, verses 10 through 12. Meditating on these things leads him to write this prayer. You see this prayer in, in verses 10 to 12. David prays, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. So the righteous recognize their tremendous need for the steadfast love of God. Because they understand it is their only hope and it's all they have. Without it, we we would be lost. And so I think this is a great example here of how we should pray for ourselves and for each other. Oh God, bless my brothers and sisters. Give them grace in their time of need. Help them to turn away from temptation and sin. 
Continue your righteousness to them. In other words, your, your sanctifying work in them. Cause them to grow in wisdom and love and grace and knowledge of the truth. And then finally, David prays for himself and is an example, I think, a good example in this psalm of how we should pray for ourselves. He says, don't let the foot of arrogance come upon me. Pride, arrogance, internal temptations to turn away from God, internal temptations to depart from the Lord. And then he says, and let let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. The hand of the wicked, external pressure to depart from the Lord. Christians constantly face both. And only God can deliver us from them. And so this, this brings a wonderful uh, symmetry to this psalm because um, we see that after meditating upon the state of the, the wicked and the grace of God, David is basically saying, Oh Lord, be gracious to me. He may be, perhaps he, you know, he, he sees what has happened to others. He says, don't let what happened to them happen to me. Through pride and arrogance, I have seen wicked people lose all fear of you, all fear of the true and living God. Their hearts have become like rocks. They become slaves to their sin. Oh God, I see, I see pride and arrogance in me. Don't let that happen to me. And oh Lord, I see how the influence of other wicked people has drawn them away or pressured others to deny you. And stop walking in your ways. I, I, I see those who used to sit in church with me now blaspheme your holy name because they want to be accepted by their friends, by other people, more than they want your acceptance. Oh God, don't let that happen to me. Don't let that happen to my children. Turn their hearts to you. These are the ways that we should, we should pray. David is giving us an example. And then finally, he closes with, the judgment of the wicked. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. So the steadfast love and the grace of God will only last forever for those who have repented and trusted in Christ. For those who have not, God's kindness and patience will eventually run out. And they will be judged. And that judgment will be final. There will be no second chances. And it will be eternal. It will last forever and ever. And the wicked will have no recourse. They'll suffer under the the wrath and the punishment of Almighty God for all of their sins forever and ever. They will be thrust down and never able to rise. And so instead of trying to steal and abuse and pervert as many gifts as possible from the hand of the giver, if, if people were wise, they would instead ponder the incredibly enormous penalty they'll have to pay for all of, those, all of these gifts that they've taken from the giver and, and, and abused and stolen when they stand before him. They, they should ponder the enormous penalty they'll have to pay when they stand before them if before him. If they examine themselves against God's law, they would see it. But of course, in our sin, in our, our in ourselves, we don't want to do that. I mean, what kind of person would want to ruthlessly and consistently examine themselves in light of God's law? And the answer is only those who have been born again. 
Only those who have seen how horribly and repeatedly they've broken it, who have stopped justifying themselves and making excuses, and have come to trust in Christ for their salvation, so that all their lawless deeds have been forgiven, and so that the law can no longer condemn them, and those who have received the Holy Spirit to empower them and enable them to keep the law they previously had no ability, ability to keep. If you think about it, how else could any sinful human being come to truly love and appreciate God's law? I mean, many people hate God's law outright. They call good evil and evil good. But even for those of us who know that God's law is holy and righteous and good, what sinner can truly appreciate, and, uh, appreciate it and be grateful for it when they know that it's a standard that they can never possibly keep and a standard that will forever condemn them? If just one sin sends me to hell forever and I've already committed 50 billion or more sins and there's no hope of forgiveness, how am I going to be motivated to, to appreciate God's law? This was exactly Martin Luther's problem before he was converted. At one point, one of his fellow monks asked him, Brother Martin, do you love God? And Martin Luther, who had spent hours a day, he used to spend hours a day confessing his sin, and, and, and he quipped back, he said, Love God? Sometimes I hate Him. And the reason he said that was because Luther found it impossible to love a God who was always angry with him. And how could a holy and righteous God be anything other than angry with a person who broke his law in one way or another every single day? But, oh, set me free from the law of sin and death through faith in God's Son who loved me, who loved me and gave himself for me and fill me with the Spirit of God so that I am now able to actually die to sin and live to righteousness now. I can fully and truly love God's law. Now I am free to be holy. Now I can say that God's law is good and good for me. And now I can truly walk in God's ways. Because he's given me grace and peace and forgiveness and a perfect record that doesn't come through keeping his law, but rather through faith in Jesus Christ. I believe in a God who sent his son to justify the ungodly. And so now his law retains all of its good functions in my life without the condemnation because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul writes, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. As we're celebrating, starting to, beginning to celebrate Advent, this is why the Incarnation is such good news. Why God becoming a human being is such good news. You see, in this sermon, so far I've, I've 
I've given you only the second best illustration of the love and faithfulness and righteousness and justice of God in the midst of sinful humanity. I've talked about what we call common grace, the things we can see in creation and in society, but the best illustration of these things, the star that shines the brightest, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus displays these characteristics of God found in Psalm 36. If we could go back to verses 5 through 9, the slide before this one, verses 5 through 9. Better, oh, yeah, I got there on two slides. Uh, better than anyone else. Christ's love and faithfulness reached to the heavens, but it didn't stay in the heavens. It went down into the sewer of, of humanity. Christ's righteousness remained unmoved and unchanged because even as someone who is uh, fully and truly human, he still kept God's law perfectly. His righteousness was like the mountains of God, unmoving, unchanging. See, in Christ, God the Father is now able to justify and forgive believing sinners because Jesus, his son, was punished on the cross for their crimes in their place. And now God's justice goes even deeper with Jesus Christ as both the Savior and the judgment of, of mankind. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but no one can, can say to God, God, you don't know what it's like to be tired, <laughs> or you don't know what it's like to be hungry, or, or thirsty, or lonely, or abused, or betrayed, because Jesus does. Jesus does know that. He does know those things. Jesus experienced all of those things. And so the judgments of Christ are like the great deep. The loving kindness of Christ is precious, and we as believers take refuge from the wrath of God in the shadow of his wings, verse 7. We take refuge in the shadow of his wings. And we drink freely from from his, from Christ's river of delights. All the spiritual blessings, Paul says, that are ours. I've been reading and trying to memorize Ephesians, and, he, and Paul talks about that over and over in Ephesians, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that we have in Christ. And so we drink freely from the river of delights, having received adoption as sons and daughters and every spiritual blessing in Christ. And in Christ is the fountain of life, verse 9. In Christ is the fountain of life. In His life, death, and resurrection, we see the light of God, the truth of God, and the love of God as never before because He is altogether glorious and lovely. And so, let's remember that this Advent season as we, we remember Jesus' first coming and we prepare for and eagerly await his second coming as we begin this season of Advent together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, um, we thank you for your word given to us. Thank you for your spirit who applies your word to our hearts. We thank you for your grace at work in our lives, Lord. Apart from you, we have no good thing. We realize and we recognize this morning that every single good thing we have is a gift from you. And that we don't deserve any of it. 
that you are the giver. All we can do is receive. And I, I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who has not yet received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would do so today, even right now, even this morning. That they would, they would open their hearts to you, Lord, that they would repent of their sin, that they would trust in you as, as their Lord and as their Savior, that they would submit to you, bow the knee to you, that they would trust in you to do in them what they can't do for themselves. And Lord, I pray that we would remember, not just today, but throughout the rest of this week, this month, the rest of this year, your goodness and your grace in the midst of a sinful people like us. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.